Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, is bound by that oath. You blind fools, what's greater? The gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say that if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind grinds, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside it's full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you, how will you escape from being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you'll kill and crucify. Others you'll flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so will come upon you all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This too is the word of the Lord. That's a hard passage. And here's a hard truth to go with it. Of all the people that Jesus encounters, you go through the Gospel of Matthew and look at all the encounters. Of all the people Jesus encounters, the people he has the most difficulty with are people like us. People like you, and maybe especially people like me. The people who have the sharpest encounters with Jesus are the religiously serious, the morally observant people, church people, devout people, and especially their leaders. The sinners and the beggars and the prostitutes and the marginalized, they don't have that problem, right? They meet Jesus, and they hear his gospel, and they dive headlong into his gospel of grace. And Jesus loves them, and he preaches to them, and he heals them. Now, of course, he also calls them repentance. He calls them to new life. But they kind of know they need new life. They're ready for that. They're eager for it. But the morally upright and the religiously observant don't have that feeling. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they don't think they need to be changed. And so you see this pattern throughout the gospel. Jesus says something, tells a parable, or does a miracle. And the crowds and the sinners are drawn to him. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are suspicious. They hold him at arm's length. And they accuse him of being possessed by a demon and they accuse him of being on the other side. And this all comes to head in the chapter I just read. In the chapter I just read, Jesus finally unloads on these teachers of the law and Pharisees and confronts them with their sin. And when he does, we should listen, because I said at the beginning of the sermon, we are like them. The sins that Jesus confronts here, these are our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that we're doing those sins now necessarily, but these are the sins to which we are susceptible. We are the morally observant. These are the sins that morally observant, morally serious religious people are susceptible to. And so when we hear these woes, we should not just think of them as something that Jesus said to the Pharisees long ago. We should take this as an opportunity for self-examination and listen to Jesus as if he was speaking to us. And we will do that, but before we do, I want to ask you a question. Jesus accuses uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of being fakers, right? Being charlatans, not being truly religious. Do you think that the Pharisees knew they were fakes? Do you think they thought of themselves as fakes? Do you think they thought of themselves as putting on a show? Because there's a kind of scam artist that knows they're scamming, right? When you get that email from the Nigerian prince, right? The one that says, uh, you know, give me your bank information, I'll send you a million dollars. I'm pretty sure that guy knows he's not a Nigerian prince, right? He knows he's scamming. Are the Pharisees like that guy? Do they think they're scamming? Absolutely not. They think they're the righteous. They're praying every day. They're worshiping. They're working hard at their righteousness. They're reading the Torah. They think that they are God's children. And Jesus tells them, nope, you are wrong. And that should give me and all of us pause because we are them. We're in church every Sunday. 
we're reading our Bibles, we're praying, we're religiously devout. How do we know that we are not self-deceived? How do we know that we're not in the grips of hypocrisy? Hypocrisy, that's the issue in this text, right? Jesus says a lot of things in this text. He brings a lot of accusations, all of them important. But that word that binds them all together is that word he keeps repeating, hypocrisy. There are seven woes, six of them, Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. That's the sin, really, the base sin that we're looking at today. The sin that is the one that we're susceptible to as morally serious, religiously serious people. So I want to look at that today. I want to listen to what Jesus says. And by listening to this text, look at two different ways that we, today, in our context, are susceptible to this sin and going the way of the Pharisees. First, verse 24 Jesus accuses the Pharisees of doing something very interesting, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You Pharisees, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a can. Now, apparently this is something real. If you know your Leviticus, you'll know that all flying insects were unclean, right? You weren't allowed to eat them. They would morally contaminate you according to Old Testament law. And so, the Pharisees, because they were so observant, if you were to go out for a glass of wine with a Pharisee, they bring a little strainer along, and they put it over their glass. Just in case a few gnats had flown into the wine bottle, they'd pour it out, and they'd strain out their gnats. Now, not everybody did this, but the Pharisees did. And when you saw it, you thought to yourself, wow, those guys are really righteous. Jesus points out that while you guys are doing that righteous thing, straining out the gnats, at the same time, you're gobbling down a camel's work of witness over there. Camels were also unclean animals. And in contrast to gnats, they were a little bit bigger. In fact, they were the biggest unclean animal that you could find in Palestine at that day. So you're straining your gnats, but you're gobbling down wickedness the size of a camel over here. You Pharisees are scrupulous of avoiding small sins, but meanwhile you wallow in corruption. You're tithing your dill, your mint, and your cumin, but meanwhile you're completely ignoring the needs of the poor and treating your servants like dirt. And what difference does it make if your wine is gnat-free, if the conversation you enjoy over that wine is all about self-indulgence and hatred and gossip? Here's the center of the danger that Jesus is holding up, the danger that hypocrisy for righteous people, focusing on small acts of righteousness, but neglecting the big ones, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, the things at the center of our faith by Jesus' own account. Now, notice the difference between those two kinds of actions, the straining out of the gnats and justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The straining out of the gnats and the tithing on the dill and the mint and the cumin, those are impersonal and they're performative. If you're straining out your gnats, you're not, you're not doing anything to benefit another person. There's no, there's no way you're causing another person to flourish. It's just, a, it's just an act. It doesn't build anything between people. And it's performative, right? Everybody sees it and sees how righteous you are. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness are not performative. They are deep inclinations of the heart, right? They are, they are qualities of the soul that it takes a lifetime to cultivate, and they are very personal. Justice and mercy have everything to do with how you treat your neighbor. 
and they involve sacrifice. Faithfulness is about your personal relationship with your Lord. Those two things could not be more different. And focusing on the small things without neglecting the big things is a terrible error. Where does this tendency show itself in our world, in our life? Is this something that we do and that we're in danger of doing? For me, a place where I see it in my own life, and I'm using myself as an example because I think this faces you too, is in the way we treat our neighbors. And by our neighbors, I mean the people on the streets around us when we walk into church, some of our poorest neighbors. And when I first came to the grave, uh, when someone would come up and panhandle me, which happens all the time, right? I think if you've been a long time LaGrave member, it's happened to you. When that happened to me, it really tore me up. I, I really, I did not know what to do. So every time someone came up to me and asked me for money, I would listen, I would hear their story, I would struggle with what to do. And sometimes I gave them money, maybe sometimes I took them to Subway and bought them a sandwich, sometimes I gave them a ride, but I always listened, I always tried to figure out what to do, and I always tried to do something. Now I've since heard and learned, and, and many of you know this too, should never give money to panhandlers. All the experts say so. Instead, you should give money to institutions that help them. So what have I done? Every year, at the end of the year, I write a check to Degage. I sit down in my nice, comfortable, newly remodeled kitchen, and I write a check. And now, you know what I'm really good at? When someone panel handles me, walking right by him, looking very busy and important. No, no, I haven't got time for that. Nope, sorry. Maybe you're good at that too. But I wonder when I do that, am I straining out a gnat but swallowing a camel? I'm doing the impersonal thing, writing the check, pretty impersonal. And the personal thing where I actually notice this person, where I actually pay attention to this person, where I actually learn their name, at least see their plight, I've swept that aside. I've learned not to ask for their names. And there's part of me that doesn't even acknowledge their existence sometimes. And I think that's so different than what Jesus did. Remember back to the sermon on the leper. Remember what the leper did? Remember what Jesus did with the leper when he healed him? First, he acknowledged his existence, right? I am willing to heal you. You have dignity. I see you. Be clean. Jesus never just did the physical thing. He always did the personal thing as well. Am I straining out a gnat and ignoring the larger issues of justice, mercy, and faithfulness? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that we are supposed to struggle with things like this together. So one danger facing morally, facing morally serious people is focusing on little things and leaving the big things to the side. The second way we morally serious people can fall into hypocrisy is by focusing on outside things instead of inside things. I mean, Jesus says that very clearly. He says it two times, right? First in verse 27, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, he says to the Pharisees. He's like, you got a pretty gravestone, but inside your dirt and bones and death. In verse 27, or excuse me, verse 23, he says, you guys clean the outside of the dish, but the inside is full of self-indulgence and greed and rot. And that message, of course, of Jesus, you've got to focus on the inside, that's, when it comes to morality, that's absolutely the message of the New Testament, right? From the beginning to end in Paul, it's always about what's in the inside. It's not about moral performance, right? We don't 
have a checklist of moral activities that we make sure we do, we're always trying to be transformed on the inside. But the Holy Spirit transforming our hearts and our souls so that we are made more in the image of Christ. It starts from the inside. So how do we do that? How do we be people who live from the inside out, who aren't about moral performance? Lots of ways. As I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about one way that I'd like to share with you that reminded me of a story of something in seminary. When I started out in seminary, my very first year as a young seminarian, one of the first things you do at Calvin Seminary is you go uh, to a, a, a student retreat, all seminary retreat, and they always have a speaker. And the speaker that year was Dave Beelan, who many of you know, uh, recently retired at Madison. I think Dave's about 10 years older than me, pastor at Madison for a long, long time. He was a young man then, so was I. And he got up in front of everybody and he started talking. He'd been in ministry about seven years and he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, for the first five years of my ministry, all I tried to do was not fall flat on my face. And I absolutely loved that. That was like the best thing I'd heard someone say about ministry so far in my time at seminary. Now, why do I say that? Um, because I think when I, when I started ministry, when I listened to some of what my fellow seminarians said, and when I listened to what some of the older ministers said, when they talked about ministry, it was always in this triumphalistic terms. It's a great calling, and the Holy Spirit will be with you. Go boldly, preach the word, the Lord will, you know, flourish, and just all that sort of really strong. And, and when they talked about their task, it felt like, they had no qualms when they got up into the pulpit. When they mounted the pulpit, they did it in the bright light of complete certainty. But that was not me. I was absolutely worried about falling flat on my face. And I was not sure about a lot of things. And so when I heard Dave get up there and acknowledge that he had those same feelings, and I could see that he was actually serving in a church and the Lord was using him, and that the Lord had helped him deal with those feelings, that was exactly what I needed to hear. That helped me at the beginning of my seminary and got me through a lot of things. Now here's the thing. I don't think any of those guys, my fellow classmates, who pretended to be so confident, Pretended like they had no fears at all. I don't think any of them actually felt that way. I think absolutely all of them were worried about falling flat on their face. But they didn't want to communicate that because they wanted to, to seem strong and they wanted to, to encourage strength and faithfulness in the other person, right? Those ministers who talked to me, they wanted to, they wanted to show strength and faithfulness so that I would feel strength and faithfulness. So they polished the outside of the cup. Is that serious hypocrisy? No. But by leaving out part of the story, by not telling about that part on the inside of their cup that was difficult, they potentially could have led someone like me and other students astray in that I'm tempted, if I'm not supposed to feel this way, I'm going to put on the show too. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to pretend there's nothing wrong with me. I'm going to pretend that I'm 100% confident all the time. And pretty soon, your whole ministry and your whole life becomes a show. And it's lonely. And it's exhausting. And you know what? If you get good at that show, if you get good at hiding your insecurities, you think, boy, I'm good at hiding things. I wonder what else I can hide. And then you're hiding different things, darker things. Here is where 
there's some really good advice for parents and grandparents and anyone who's concerned about the next generation. When you talk to the next generation about faith, don't simply tell the stories of heroism. Don't simply show your strength. I mean, by all means, encourage them to faithfulness and courage, but tell them the stories of your weakness. If you had a season in your life where you struggled with depression, if you had a season in your life of failure, if you had a season in your life where you didn't go to church at all because your faith was that thin and God brought you back from that, tell that story because guess what? Your kids are not going to be af- bold and courageous all the time. They're going to be afraid and they need to know that you were afraid too and that God brought you through. Hypocrisy is not just a Pharisee problem. It's our problem too. And when you spend a little time with these woes and really focus on what Jesus is saying, you realize that these are sins that, that are in us. We struggle with these things. We're in danger of these things. And it's good to examine ourselves and realize that, but it's also terrible because the other thing that strikes you in this passage is how angry Jesus gets with hypocrisy. Right? Jesus is furious. When we are hypocrites. Jesus is so angry in this passage. And you hear that at the Pharisees, right? He says, all the blood of the ages is going to come down on you. He's prophesying, and the prophecy he makes comes true because the blood of the, it's 70 AD, the Romans come into town and they knock the temple down and, and all these religious leaders experience a terrible judgment when the Romans destroy the temple. When I think about that judgment, in my own hypocrisy, I feel the weight of, of Jesus' anger. And then I start to hear verse 33 in a different way. Verse 33, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Who's that question for? It's easy to read this passage and just say, oh, that's that that question, that's, that's just for the Pharisees. Those are the bad guys way back there. They're the bad guys. It's not for me. But of course, if you do that, you're doing exactly what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of doing saying that if we lived back in those days, we wouldn't have killed the prophets, right? And Jesus says, absolutely you would have. If we do the same thing, we're just like them. So is that question for us? Yes, that is. So what will save us from the weight of that question? Where does our help come from? From the heart of Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you notice how this passage ends? After that scathing set of woes where Jesus crashes down on the Pharisees, all of a sudden, his tone turns and you hear him speak from his heart of love. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, how long I've wanted to just gather you together under my wings, all of you, you Pharisees, you scribes, you hypocrites, How long I've wanted to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing. You keep pushing me away. I love you with the tenderness of a mother hen for her children. We need to hear the scathing words of Jesus because we need to examine ourselves and know ourselves properly. But we need to hear those loving words of Jesus because we need to know where our help and our hope comes from. How far will Jesus' love go? How deep? Where will it lead him? To Calvary, of course, to the cross, where he will shed his blood. The blood of the ages of all the the righteous people will not just come down on the Pharisees, and ultimately most of it will come down on him. 
and he will die for us and our, for, for our salvation. If you've ever tried to clean the inside of your cup, you know how hard that is, right? Jesus calls us to do that. And have you tried that? Any of you spent any time trying to clean the inside of your cup? Pretty hard, hard to get clean. There's always something left, isn't there? When I realize that, when I hear Jesus here, I realize his blood is the thing that's finally going to clean the inside of my cup. My willpower, my strength's not going to get it done. His blood. And so at the end of this passage, I lift up my cup to Jesus, and I'm sure you do too, and I say, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Clean what I cannot clean, Lord. Send your spirit on me and make me whole. Amen. Lord, what a hard passage this is for us to read. It puts us in a place where um, we are really uncomfortable. And there's so much anger that's shown that we really don't like to think of from you, Lord, but we, we submit to it, Lord, and we come to the foot of your cross and ask you to clean what we cannot clean ask you to make our spirits whole, ask you to make us our joyful, sincere servants in this world. Amen.